Welcome back to Criminal Curiosity, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Jade, and thank you so much for listening to today's episode. It is very much appreciated, and I hope that you're having a good day, good evening, good night, wherever you're at in the world. I hope that you're having a great day, and if not, I hope it gets better. So, last week we talked about, or not last week, couple weeks ago, we talked about the mysterious disappearance of Marion Carver on a cruise ship, and this week we are going to be talking about serial killer John Edward Robinson, who went from committing financial crimes to murder. So let's get started. John Edward Robinson was born on December 27, 1943, in Cicero, Illinois, to his parents Alberta and Henry Robinson. He was the third of five children. His father was a machinist and drank a lot. Alberta, John's mother, was a very strict mother. She believed that if her kids didn't behave when they went somewhere and they had no manners or they wouldn't listen to her, it would be a reflection of her. If her children are bad, then her parenting is bad. Or if her children are good and well-behaved, then her parenting style is seen as good. It was also reported that she was very detached emotionally from her children. Of course, she raised them, but she wasn't like, you know, come here, my sweet honey bun. She wasn't that parent that would always kiss your face and squeeze the living life out of you when she hugged you. Alberta thought that John had the most potential out of all her children. He would do great things and he would have the greatest opportunities. John was described as being a good child. He was in the Boy Scout. He did well in school. He was a nice person. He was well-mannered. You could look at the kid and say, I want my child to be just like you. And in 1956, John became an Eagle Scout and even traveled to London, where they all performed for Queen Elizabeth. John was enrolled at the Quigley Preparatory Seminar in Chicago. It was an all-boys school for aspiring priests, and he graduated at 18 years old. Oftentimes, we see our parents or our guardians just work and come home and maybe drink. Not Not every household is like this, but there are a lot that are like this, and they do so because they are stressed, unhappy, or doing something that they don't really enjoy. And when you see that, you look at yourself and say, I don't want to be like my parents where I work a job and I'm stressed, I see no purpose, constantly struggling financially no matter how hard I work, and I cope with all the stress in an unhealthy way. And this is what John saw when he looked at his father. He saw someone who worked a lot and drank a lot. And John didn't want that. He wanted money, quick, fast, easy money, and religion, being a priest, it was not it. That's not where the money was at. 
Instead, he decides to enroll at the Morton Junior College in Searsaro, Illinois, to become a radiographer, which is an x-ray technician. But after two years, he drops out. But he said he was still getting that degree with or without finishing college. So he forges himself a diploma along with fake letters of recommendation and goes out looking for jobs. He does land himself a job as an x-ray technician at a Chicago hospital. He meets a woman by the name of Nancy Jo Lynch. They get married and move to Kansas City. And soon after Nancy finds out that she's pregnant, she gave birth to their first child, John Jr., in 1965. In 1967, they welcome their daughter Kimberly and twins Christopher and Christine in 1971. In 1967, after working at the hospital for three years, John was fired, but not because they found out that his credentials were fake, but because they found out he embezzled over $33,000 in his own bank account. But he received no jail time and just got three years of probation. Since he wasn't in jail, he was still out and about, still has his freedom. He thought, all right, let me do this again. In 1970, he got a job as an insurance salesman at the R.B. Jones Company, and violated probation by moving to Chicago. And the same thing happened. He was caught for embezzling the firm's funds for his own sake, and his probation was extended by another three years with no jail time. John became a scoutmaster, a baseball coach, and a Sunday school teacher. He was really everything, every single career at this point. But nevertheless, it was a persona that he was keeping up with. He had a wonderful wife and kids. He was making money as well as stealing it, but no one knew that part. And overall, his life just seemed perfect. That's what we all think, to say the least. John hated working for other people, which is a feeling a lot of people can relate to. He got into the entrepreneur side of things and, in 1971, started his own business. And he decided to move him and his family to Missouri. So, a new state, new person, new life, new career, new mindset. As things are looking up for John and his business, he violates his probation by again moving to another state without permission. He's then arrested, spends two weeks in jail, and is back, like nothing happened. John starts forging documents and begins giving them to investors to con them into investing into his company. You can say that the company was his bank account. Some fell for it, others didn't. After a company realizes that these documents that he's presenting are fake, they alert the authorities, and John is sentenced to six months in jail for fraud. Once John has served his time, he said that we're going bigger and better. We're going to keep doing this. John forged letters from people to himself, including from the mayor, 
saying that they should invest in his company. But the company, again, is his own bank account. He hosted a luncheon where he was given a plaque for Man of the Year, presented to him by the Kansas City Area Association of Shelter Workshops. So he puts together this whole event with his own money, with his own award presented to him by another company that says Man of the Year. Did he really need an award that says Man of the Year? No. The news got out about this event and the company came out and said, we did not take part in this luncheon. This is not our problem. We did not present some random man with a Man of the Year award. So people did some digging and found out that he is a fraud and he has been to jail for fraud and is currently on probation. He gets another job as a manager, and yes, again, he embezzles money from the company into his own bank account. But this was a different bank account. It was a bank account for his wife and kids. And then he had, like, his own personal bank account for his own desires, wants, and needs. He would use the money for apartments to cheat on his wife. It doesn't take authorities long to realize that John is back doing the same thing. He spends 60 days in jail and is given five years probation. Now, throughout this entire time that I was researching this case, I had to ask myself, do people actually get arrested for embezzlement? Because John seems to be getting away with this time and time and time again. And I looked it up, like every state is different, but the state that I'm in, I looked it up and it said something along the lines of like you pay a fine or you can spend like a year to, I don't even know how long. I was starting to think that no one goes to prison for embezzlement because this man just kept getting away with it. In 1982, after his release, He's back again to his fraudulent business. He created a hydroponics business, which is where they grow plants and crops without the soil. He took $25,000 from someone that he was working with, and the man that he took the money from was saving up for his wife's medical care, who was dying, and John just stole the money. In 1984, John has two fraudulent shell companies. And a shell company, just in case you don't know, because I didn't know this, is a company that has no office, no employees, no building, just exists on paper. But it does have a bank account. So at this time, he meets 19-year-old Paula Godfrey, who is working as her secretary. And he proposes a job opportunity for her. He tells her that she can make it to the top. She has a good work ethic. He tells her that, you know, I'm the CEO speaking directly to you. And you could be working as a sales representative. Paula takes the job, which 
is not a real job because John doesn't have a company. After she takes the job, John tells her that she has to go to Texas for training and all expenses are paid for by the company. She is, of course, excited because this is a different opportunity. She is able to travel and all expenses are paid for. And she's getting paid to train as well. John tells Paula to sign a bunch of blank papers and give him a list of her closest relatives and friends, names, numbers, and addresses. He told her the reason for this was because she was going to be busy with training, so busy, that it would be hard to manage training and staying in contact with her friends and family. So he would do the due diligence and take care of it for her, take the weight off her shoulders. He will write the letters, send them off, they read it, and you get paid for training. Paula's family is excited for her. She gets this opportunity to do something different in a new area. Paula tells her family that she will contact them when she gets the time, and she will see them once training is complete. After some time of not hearing anything from Paula, they go to Texas and visit her. Because she told them, you know, what hotel she was staying at, they go there, and when they go to the front desk to ask for Paula, they are told that no one by the name of Paula checked in. So, the family is confused. They know about John because she's supposed to be working for him, and they go and talk to him. And John acts so confused. He said that he's been trying to get in contact with her, and he's heard absolutely nothing from her. Her parents decide to file a missing persons report. They tell the police everything that happened from Paula being offered this new job and training in Texas, and the man who hired her is John Robinson, and they believe that he knows a little bit more than they do. Police go to question John, and he acts confused as well. And that he's just trying to get in contact with her, and he's so concerned because he hired her, and all of a sudden, she's missing. Police go back and tell Paula's parents what John told the police, and they don't believe John at all. A couple of days later they receive a typewritten letter from their daughter in the mail. In the letter, she writes that she's okay and she doesn't want to see her family. Her parents find this odd because before she left, she was excited and she couldn't wait until the next time she saw her parents. And now in the letter, she tells them that she doesn't want to see them. Her parents take the letter down to the police station. Her parents told the police that she wouldn't write that in a letter. The wording does not sound like her, but the signature at the bottom is hers. And seeing as the letter was typed, there was no way of knowing whether or not it was her handwriting through forensic handwriting analysis. The police basically say that, okay, this is a typed letter with her signature, 
That doesn't prove John did anything to her. She's 19, she's of legal age, there's really nothing for us to investigate. So, they threw out the missing persons report, and that was it. Paula Godfrey has never been found. Back home, the pattern that was in John's house and his marriage was not great. He continued to have affairs with other women, and when Nancy Joe found out about these affairs, she would threaten to take the kids from him, and he would beg her not to because he would stop having these affairs. We all know that this is a lie. John became interested in the S&M world, meaning sadism and masochism. And Rihanna has a song called S&M, and like the, the most popular lyrics is, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but chains and whips excite me. Why was I dancing to this song on Just Dance when I was 10? I have no idea. And I'm just now learning that Rihanna's song, S&M, and Fifty Shades of Grey popularized the S&M world. And you're probably like, what does this have to do with anything in the story? It plays a big part in it. Just trust me. In the S&M world, there were nighttime clubs for these things. Sadism means inflicting pain. And masochism is receiving pain for sexual pleasure and gratification. He liked the idea of being in control. He was the master and having a woman who was a slave. There are chains, whips, handcuffs, and blindfolding type of situation if you can't imagine it, or if you've watched Fifty Shades of Grey, that's exactly how it works. In 1985, John comes up with this idea to still scam people, but mix it with sadism and masochism. He wanted to target young mothers who were not married. He would call different hospitals and tell them that he is in a business where their mission is to give work training to young mothers. They would cover housing and a $800 monthly stipend. Some hospitals thought this was a scam. Like, who calls a hospital asking them to find young mothers to train for six months. Like, what does that have to do with a hospital? Nothing. But one hospital does get him involved with 19-year-old Lisa Stacy, who at the time had a four-month-old daughter. At this time, John changed his name from John Robinson to John Osborne. He meets up with her at a woman's shelter in Kansas City. He promised Lisa a job, an apartment, and a daycare for her daughter. No money is coming out of her pocket, no stress at all, all expenses paid for. John asked her to sign off several sheets of paper and give him a list of her closest family and friends' names, numbers, and addresses. And just like with Paula, he tells her that she is going to be so busy with training that he would take the load off by staying in contact with her friends and family for her. A few days after Lisa has gone to training, John gets in contact with his brother. His brother is married and they are struggling to have a baby of their own. 
and they were looking into adoption. John tells the couple that there is this baby. Her mother had taken her own life, so the baby's all by herself. She has no other family, and she just needs a family. He tells them that $5,500 in legal fees could have the adoption completed. After they pay John, they get a four-month-old baby with a set of adoption papers that look very, very real, and the papers were signed by a judge and two lawyers. The couple, of course, were happy because they finally had what they wanted, which was a child. I do not know where John got the judge and the two lawyers' signatures from. Did he scam them into getting the signatures? I don't know. Lisa's friends and family start getting letters in the mail saying that her training is going well, she's doing good, she's grateful to be in this position where she can provide for her and her daughter, and she can't wait to see them. Lisa's parents found this weird. They didn't feel like it was their daughter. So, when Lisa told them where she was going and what she was going to be doing there, they looked up the company and there is zero existence of it. Her parents go to the police and the police knew about John. They knew about Paula Godfrey and how both women's stories sounded oddly similar. But police were like... Why would John need to do this? You know, sure he committed financial crimes, but why would he scam women and they're never found? Besides, of course, the obvious answer is that he's just evil and a horrible person. But they said that there was no physical evidence that proves he had anything to do with it. And for all they knew, no one knew if there was foul play involved. They question John, who is very cooperative. He's willing to help. John said that her training was finished, and he hasn't talked to her since, and he has no idea where she was. But police didn't believe it. They weren't thinking that he possibly murdered them. They were thinking that some sex ring thing was going on, and the apartment that he got for them was used to get money while providing services for men. They arrested John for operating a sex ring, and he posts bail and is released. The FBI gets involved, and they put John under watch, and then arrest him again for violating his probation, and he is sentenced to seven years in prison. John, of course, is released after one year and given probation again. John, the police, nor the criminal justice system is learning nothing in this story so far. Despite the numerous efforts Lisa's family makes, Lisa has never been found. Two years later, in 1987, John places an ad for a position that needed to be filled for his non-existent company. 27-year-old Catherine Clampett is looking for a fresh start. She sees this ad and thinks that it would be perfect for her. She gets in contact with John and she tells her family that she is excited to leave and have a fresh start. 
She has a daughter, but she planned on leaving her with her family in Wichita Falls, Texas, so that she could focus on this new job in Kansas City and get settled in. Catherine's family tries reaching out to her multiple times, and they hear nothing from her. They go to the police, but unlike the other families, they had no way of saying, you should talk to John. He was the one to hire her, so he must be in contact with her. They filed a missing persons report, but no one has ever heard from her again. From 1987 to 1993, John is sent to Western Missouri Correctional Facility for multiple fraud convictions and served six years. While he's there, he meets a 49-year-old woman named Beverly Bonner, who is the prison librarian. John works his charisma on her and tells her that he has some business, and he thinks it would be nice to have a woman by his side helping him run the business, and she entertained the idea. And he's like, I know the perfect job for you. I can see it working out already. I have a vision. You will get the opportunity to travel, and even better, you will get to be with me, working alongside me. Beverly has a husband who is a prison doctor, and she begins a whole affair with John the convict. The plan was for her to move to Kansas with John after he was released. Her level of trust is something I probably will never have in my life. Because how do you meet a man in prison who you don't know what he's in prison for and decide that I'm going to leave my husband, who is a doctor, and start an affair and move somewhere new with this man named John? who could very well be a killer. Beverly is at this point excited. She's in a new location with a new man. Her divorce is finalized with the doctor, and she is getting alimony, which was a thick check that she was getting. The checks were at first going to her mother's house, but after she moved, she told her mom to forward them to a P.O. box in Kansas City. Beverly is never to be heard from again. Beverly's mom is still getting letters from her daughter, which is John, saying that she is loving life, she is traveling more, life is just great, bada bing, bada bang. But whatever you do, just keep sending those alimony checks, please and thank you. Her mom forwards the checks to the P.O. box, and Beverly isn't the one cashing the checks and getting the money. It's John. Let's get this. Let's get this straight. She is with a doctor who is making bank. No secret there. Doctors stay making money. To a prisoner who is in prison for fraud, meaning he's not making bank. I think it's really good in life to not dive headfirst into anything. It's just good to take a step back and think, weigh out your possibilities, because a good majority of people that you meet, well, I don't know the statistics, but when you when you know so many murder stories, you 
are like, no one has my interest, my best interest at heart. So no, I don't want to work for you. No, I would not look good by your side. It's not happening. Please leave me alone. Moving on to the age of the internet. In the 1990s, John has discovered the World Wide Web. Don't know how or why he found out. I think the world would have been better off without him knowing. But John being John uses this to his advantage. He thought, I'm still going to do what I did before, just find some women on the internet. How hard can it be? John would go into these different chats on the internet with the username Slavemaster. He mentioned that he was looking for women who enjoyed being submissive to their partners, and he will be the dominant one. He meets 45-year-old Sheila Faith, who is a single mother to her 15-year-old daughter who is in a wheelchair due to spina bifida, which is a birth defect and the spine does not develop properly. So because of this, she gets a social security disability check every month of about $1,000. John portrays himself online as a wealthy businessman and philanthropist. I struggle to say that word so much. But John is literally already being a catfish and the internet just started. John tells Sheila that he is a farmer, he owns a farm, and it would be great to have some company on the farm in Kansas. He tells her, not to worry because he has all the money that can help pay off her daughter's medical expenses and all she has to do is stick by his side and help him run his business and take care of the farm animals. In 1994, Sheila and her daughter move from Fullerton, California to Kansas City. Once they get there, they go missing and never have been seen or heard from again. But not before all of her social security payments are transferred to a P.O. box in Kansas City. And John, of course, is collecting all that money, and he does so for the next seven years. John is loving the BDSM world and has quite the reputation on the internet. Everyone just loves him on there. He tries to convince pretty much all the women that he talks to on the internet to move to Kansas City with him, and many of them say that's not happening. John created a slave contract, and when a woman signed it, it meant that he had full control over the women's minds and bodies, and that he should be referred to as master, and the woman must follow every order that he gives them. I really don't know what it is with human beings wanting to control one another. It's weird, and it's sick. John posts the contract online, and there are some women that are wanting exactly what was written out in that contract. He had multiple affairs with women using this contract, and there were some women that wanted out of the contract such as women that had jobs and a social life, and they didn't want people to find out about it. And John would be like, no, I don't really care. You're going to do what I say. 
or else I will tell everyone that there is a different side to you. And John said that he needed money in order to help himself from exposing them. Everything he does, it's for money. In 1999, he meets 21-year-old Isabella Lawika, a Polish immigrant living in Indiana. He promises her a new apartment since she's fresh out of college. She doesn't have to pay any rent. All expenses will be covered. She thinks that the new apartment sounds good, so she moves to Kansas City. And once she's there, John, who is very much still married, gives Isabella an engagement ring and proposes to her. They both go down to the county registrar or register place and file for a marriage license. They paid for the license, but they never picked it up. Isabella did tell her parents that she was married. He was a successful businessman and he has money. They're traveling, she's in love, and everything is going well. She's happy and she wants to be left alone. But she never told them the name of the man. And shortly after that, Isabella goes missing. According to John, Isabella signed a 115-page contract that gave him access and control over every aspect of her life. He even has access to her bank accounts and emails. John confided to someone about Isabella, how she's moving here and they're getting married. And then the person that he confided to was like, where is this girl that you're talking about? I haven't seen her. You talk all this talk and I have not yet to see her. And John says that Isabella was caught smoking marijuana and was deported back to Poland. Shortly after Isabella, John meets a licensed practical nurse named Suzette Troughton in one of the online chat rooms. He offers her a spot to work for her at his business in Kansas City. For training, she was to go to Europe and he would take care of everything. All she needed to do was give him her social security number. Tip, if you are younger and you don't know this, Never give someone your social security number. Never. If someone mentions to you anything about a social security number, cut all conversations. We do not give out our social security numbers. Got it? Got it. Suzette and her two dogs go to Kansas City, and John gets a hotel room for her and tells her to sign a stack of blank paper and give him all the names, numbers, and addresses of her friends and family. Now, at this time, John would take explicit pictures of the women that he would meet up with, but with Suzette, he thought he would try something new, such as recording them. So, she signs the long 115-page contract, and they create a tape, and that is the last of Suzette. A couple of days go by and John calls the animal service saying that there are two dogs near his property that have been abandoned. The animal service people go to pick up the dogs and they realize that the dogs are well taken care of. They're clean, they look like they ate, the dogs just don't look abandoned. But nevertheless, they take the dogs and give them to another home. 
Suzette's mom starts receiving letters from supposedly Suzette, but her mom doesn't believe that it's her daughter. Over time, John becomes lazy in what he's doing. He's more careless, just not caring. Because, I mean, he's been getting away with everything that he's doing since 1984. No one is talking about it on the news. Just nothing. By late 1999, John gets on police's radar from Kansas and Missouri because his name is being mentioned in all of the missing persons reports. The police feel like they have enough evidence to go and arrest John, and this is where they find out that he's planning his next target. A mother with a teenage daughter, they thought the same thing is going to happen. She goes missing and it's just a dead end. So, in June 2000, John is arrested after a woman files a complaint against him for sexual misconduct, and then another woman came forward and accused him of selling her sex toys. And then another woman comes forward and accused him of stealing her sex toys. What was he going to do with them? And why is he stealing them? All that money he embezzled and he's still broke? The theft charge was able to get them a search warrant, and they search the home that he shares with his wife, Nancy. They take computers, papers that were signed by women that had gone missing, photos and videos of the women that were reported missing. They also searched the farm in Kansas, and there they found two 85-pound chemical drums with two body remains in them which were later identified as Isabella Luica and Suzette Troughton. John also has a storage facility in Missouri. They get a search warrant there, and there they find three 85-pound chemical drums containing bodies that were later identified as Beverly Bonner, Sheila Faith, and her 15-year-old daughter, Debbie Faith. All five of the women had suffered blunt force trauma. Once police find these discoveries, police tied John to the other missing women that were never found, including Lisa Stacy, Paula Godfrey, and Catherine Clampett. In 2002, John's trial begins where he was charged with the murders of Isabella Luica, Lisa Stacy, and Suzette Troughton. After the longest criminal trial in Kansas, he is convicted on all counts. He received the death penalty for Isabella and Suzette, and life imprisonment for Lisa. He received a 5-20 to year sentence for interfering with parental custody for taking Lisa's daughter and giving her away. 20 and a half years for kidnapping Suzette, and last but not least, in the state of Kansas, seven months for theft, everything from the checks that he stole to the sex toys. In Missouri, John faced murder charges there as well, and Missouri is all for the death penalty, so John's lawyers wanted him to avoid trial there. His lawyer came up with a plea deal if John showed them where the bodies of Paula Godfrey, Catherine Clampett, and Lisa Stacy were, and if he did so, he would avoid the death penalty. But John, of course, 
did not cooperate. They came to a compromise, and in October 2003, John was convicted of capital murder for the murders of Paula Godfrey, Catherine Clampett, Sheila and Debbie Faith, Lisa Stacy, and Beverly Bonner, and received life in prison without the possibility of parole for each murder. In 2015, the Kansas Supreme Court vacated the Suzette and Lisa Stacy murder convictions on technicalities. I have no idea what that means, but if you know what that means, help me out and explain it to me. But they still upheld the death sentence for Isabella. Where John Robinson, John Robinson, who is now 78 years old, currently remains on death row at the El Dorado Correctional Facility in Kansas, which is the same prison that Dennis Radar stays at, aka the BTK killer. What a small world. That is absolutely crazy. In 2005, Nancy decides that she wants a divorce after 41 years of marriage. The reason that they put on the paper was irreconcilable differences and incompatibility. I mean, whatever makes her feel better. Because we know, she knows that he's a killer, a cheater, a fraud, and a disgusting person and is going to prison for life. But hey, incompatibility works as well. In 2006, Lisa Stacy's daughter, whose name is changed from Tiffany to Heather Robinson, filed a civil lawsuit against the Truman Medical Center and the social worker Karen Gaddis, who put her mother in contact with John. I mean, this is crazy because she now has the last name of a killer who is her uncle, who was raised by her brother, that she calls her father. Wow. Lisa's mother, which is Heather's grandmother, writes a letter stating that if Heather is happy and they have been good to her, raised her, and protected her, she doesn't feel like it's her place to take her away from the people that really raised her. Heather and her grandmother have met and they keep a close relationship. When Heather turned 18 years old, she was legally adopted by the couple. No forging stuff, legit adoption this time. In the same year, in 2007, they reach a settlement with the hospital for an undisclosed amount, and Heather split the money with her biological grandmother. And in the same year, she wins a second judgment that prevents John from making any money from book deals, documentaries, anything about him. He gets no type of money. Kansas and Missouri police officers are well aware that there is a long time that is unaccounted for from John and that there might be more victims that they have yet to know about and yet to find. An investigator said, quote, He's maintained the secrets about what he's done with the women. He won't ever tell. It's the last control that he gets. There are probably other barrels waiting to be opened other bodies waiting to be found, end quote. End of episode thoughts? Okay, let's start. This is our way to conversate about what happened during the story that I tell. So, my thoughts are that the quote, if it's too good to be true, something's wrong, 
or if it's too good to be true, it's probably a fraud, goes very well with this case. I think the one good thing that came from this story was knowing that Lisa's daughter was raised by two loving parents. John Robinson was also known as the internet's first serial killer because that is where he got his victims from. Let that be a lesson, even in 2022, that it is okay to be paranoid, be on edge, question everything when you meet someone online. Because people like John and other serial killers have ruined so many things for us. The reason I've never been on any dating apps is that you could possibly be talking to someone who has intentions of killing you. And that does not sit right with me. I'm one to give police officers credit where it's due, but not in this case. Something so many police officers, not all, but some of them have to realize is that just because you're 19 or you're 30 or you're 60, you can go missing But it does not mean that you should turn a blind eye because they're over the age of 18. Things happen to them just as much as it does to people that are under 18. My heart goes out to all the victims and their families, and I just hope that they're at peace now. And that is the end of today's story. I would love to know what you guys think. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to all of you that listen Wherever you're at in the world, I always see it, and it absolutely is just mind-boggling. I say that every single time, but it truly is. Stay tuned for next week's episode that comes out every Thursday. You can follow my Instagram at criminalcuriositypod, where you can see the pictures of the case. This podcast is available on all podcast platforms, such as Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. If you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review and rating because it helps me out so much. Spotify now has ratings, so all you have to do is type in Criminal Curiosity and you will see a little star to leave a rating. It will be very helpful and appreciated. You can also request any cases that you have through Instagram or Gmail that I will have in the description box. And please be safe out there. Look out for one another. Until next time. Bye, everyone.